you know, I'll flip through channels and yeah, I'll land on something weird like, you know, uh, sword flippers or, or whatever. I wish that was a show. Uh, no, I was making that up, but I it know. would be a fun one. Like, you know, you buy a sword at a swap meet and you have to flip it into a I think that's sword. just called Pawn I don't Stars. Know. You just you just <laughs> reinvented Pawn Stars. Yeah. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, a movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you are from San Diego, California. Cassidy Robinson, you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. And today we're going to be reviewing The Gray Man from Netflix, which I don't know if it if I left it in the episode or not, or if it hit the cutting room floor, because I had to cut a lot. From the last episode, but uh, I believe you did like a Comic-Con Gray Man experience or some bullshit, right? There, there, well, there was, was a, one, but you didn't. Yeah, know. but I did not do it. Okay. Um, well, then that won't factor into your review. No spoilers no. from the Comic-Con experience, probably. It won't. And for the streaming homework, we're going to be talking about the documentary from last year, a Glitch in the Matrix, which is on Hulu currently. But before we get into that, we don't have any time. We don't have any time for any goofs. We don't have any time for any gaffes. We don't have any time for any Choco Tacos. Because we gotta talk about this HBO stuff. Yeah. There is a fire burning at Warner Brothers right now. Warner Brothers Discovery, specifically. Yes, which I believe, what is their connection to HBO? Did they did they absorb HBO a, a while back? So Discovery merged with Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers has always had HBO. HBO so. is owned by Time Warner. I have a series of articles that, that kind of tells the larger story. Yeah. And before we start reacting to these individually, I just want to tell the full story. With some of these sure, headlines. Sure. And then we can just kind of take it in holistically. Okay. Okay, so from Variety. This came out two days ago. Batgirl, the feature film adaptation of the DC Comics character, has been killed at Warner Brothers. Now, this was supposed to premiere on HBO Max. And it had... You know it had Brendan Fraser as uh, Firefly. It had uh, Leslie Grace playing Barbara Gordon. Yes, uh, Leslie Grace. And Michael Keaton was going to return as an aged Batman. People were excited. It was a thing. I we think I think in our other news segments, we've covered a lot of it. Um, next step in this uh, story. The rap reports that 70% of HBO Max development team is expected to be laid off. Here's a quote from the story. All I know is that they're folding HBO Max into HBO. Sounds like they're not doing HBO Max scripted shows anymore with HBO taking over. So less scripted shows overall. Well, less 
HBO Max originals. So there's there's the network HBO, mm-hmm. which you know that has that has like you know shows like Game of Thrones and Succession, and you know that's kind of where their prestige dramas live. And then when they created their their streaming app HBO Max, uh, after the DC kerfuffle. Uh, that app like imploded in on itself. There were these projects and development that were specifically for the streaming app, uh, HBO Max. So there were HBO Max originals like Doom Patrol and the new Harley Quinn uh, animated show. And, and a lot yeah. of the DC properties were getting, you know, like TV shows, but they would also produced some original movies and stuff. But there was stuff that was not airing on the network, per se. It was just kind of only available through the app. So did it only go one way? So you could watch Succession, you could watch Lovecraft (laughs) Country, you could watch Oz, you could watch all of that shit, Six Feet Under, Sex and the City. You could watch all of that on HBO Max. Could you watch all of the HBO Max originals on regular HBO? Or is... Because why the hell would anyone get so, <laughs> HBO? <laughs> HBO is you know is still a cable network. So yeah. if you have satellite, you know there's like there's still an HBO network that has scheduled programming. Right, that airs and, I, and on... I always forget it's unlike probably the only way that it's unlike, but it's it's unlike the other streamers in that to have access to it, you have to have a subscription on television. Correct? No. Oh man. What okay. the we, fuck then? So okay, that's the thing. Time Warner has always been. I'm a password been, sharer, so this is why I don't know anything. Yeah, uh, Time Warner has always been like pretty fucked up with their like. It's taken them a while to get to a point where they have a solid streaming platform. Originally, it was HBO Go, which right. was. You know, their, their streaming app, which you could only get if you had a subscription to the network. That's what you're thinking of. That was yeah. like, that was like Seven five years, years ago. ago. Yeah. Then there was a DC streaming app and it was its own thing. And they, and they were like, that. yeah, why the fuck do we have two streaming apps? So they absorbed each other and they, they just ended up putting all of this Warner media content into this one streaming app which is HBO Max, which is what we have right now. And for my money, it's my favorite streamer. It's the I think it's the best looking, it has the best interface, and generally speaking, I think they have the best content. And it has the best catalog. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, Criterion has their own streamer, but they, I know that uh, Warner or whoever, HBO, ha- also cuts a deal with Criterion. So there's a lot of older movies in and art house and that kind of stuff on there too. Yeah. So I, I mean, as a person it, who actually cares about, well, for the, sure it, it's the platform it's the first... other than original content. I liked, I, I really liked their, uh, their selection of catalog titles. Well, so let's, let's I, I mean, we haven't even gotten the full yeah, story. Out yeah. Yet. I just, that kind but, of helped but, yeah. set this up a little bit because I was still under the impression that you had to be a subscriber to the cable network to be able to, so you could just pay a monthly fee just to have the streaming service then. 
Yes. It's it's been that way for a while because you know they they wanted to get serious They're unplugging like everybody else's. Exactly. And yeah. They couldn't compete with Netflix and Amazon and stuff like that while they you know while while there was this exclusivity to it. So they mm-hmm. like I said it it's taken them years to finally get to where they have a a good product. And right now, as of this recording, they have a really good product. It's also from Variety. HBO Max quietly removes six Warner Bros. streaming exclusive films. We reviewed one of these movies. Remember that Seth Rogen thing? The uh, the Pickle movie? Whatever it was uh-huh. called? Yeah. Um, it was whatever. But... Uh, I liked it. It was, it was fine. It is now being removed along with five other titles... As of the time that this was written, there will be more. Mm-hmm. Moonshot, uh, sci-fi rom-com, Super Intelligence, The Witches, starring Anne Hathaway, the remake of The Witches. Uh, yeah, which that was that was a big HBO Max exclusive. They did that for the streaming network. Right. I mean, there were a lot of things that were made directly for HBO Max. I, I, yeah. Some stuff went to theaters, some stuff didn't. Um, depending on how big of a release they thought they could get get out of well, it. Well, there, there was, and there was also so, that weird period where they were doing a lot of day and date because the pandemic was still kind of suppressing uh, theater attendance. Yeah, yeah, but but some of these were always intended to be streaming release only. Like they they right. were intended to get people to sign up for the app. You know, like come see. Anne Hathaway in Witches, because you can only watch it on HBO Max. Yeah, I mean, exclusives are a big deal when you're starting a new streamer. Yeah. Um, An American Pickle, the Seth Rogen movie that we talked about, and Mm -hmm. uh, Locked Down, uh, Doug Doug Lyman heist picture. And Charm City Kings. uh, But it appears that that is just the beginning. That's sort of what they're starting with. And they said the reason they did this. Yeah, uh, so now, now we're getting into speculation territory. All, no, all we know, no, not necessarily. The, one of the quotes that uh, floated around a lot. Yes, and this is not just from me, from my my brain. Um, this is supposedly what has been said inside closed doors. Mm-hmm. Is that they want to focus less on smaller movies, and this is what they said about. Uh, the Batgirl movie that was made for m- intended for a streaming. I don't know. I don't know how, how you would even. Yeah. Want yeah. It, this, it, but. it was, it was meant as an HBO max original and it was 90% completed. It was almost done. Yeah. Pretty much was done except for the uh, yeah, post-production some, stuff. Exactly. But so all the money was spent. Yeah. $90 million. Yeah, uh, which is not that's not a small movie, by the way. But they said that they made it sound like the reason they're getting rid of that and all these other movies is they want to start focusing now on blockbuster sized films, which doesn't make any sense if you're talking about a streamer. But um, well, okay, this is the last one. This came out today. Chip and Joanna Gaines are moving in at HBO Max. Who are Chip and Joanna Gaines, the HGTV icons are bringing multiple shows from their Magnolia Networks banner to the streamer, including all five seasons of Fixer Upper. Now, there's also been some talk about how 
They want to, and this is part of the whole Discovery Plus adaptation. Uh, They want to start focusing a lot of their content towards unscripted, i.e. reality television, shows like Fixer Upper, or... Uh, you know, contest shows, things like that. Yeah, the HGTV stuff. Uh, yeah, all that stuff. So, okay, now, now the question this, here is: That's what we know right now, as of yes. August fourth, twenty twenty-two. This has been unfolding rapidly in the last two days. Yeah. So. The the rumor mill that I'm hearing a lot of, and and I don't know. Uh, you know, because Twitter is a buzz with all of this right now. Yeah. Um, Getting a lot of hot takes. Yeah. But it, it certainly seems like uh, David Saslav, the CEO and president of Warner Brothers Discovery. I don't fucking it, the the machine. Yes. Uh, once the merger happened, he, you know, is like promising all of this increase in revenue, like super quickly. And uh, uh, for the shareholders. And how do you increase the money super quickly? You you do what they're doing. You liquidate. Yeah. So it seems to be that they are liquidating all the stuff that made HBO Max, HBO Max. And it's either going to get folded into Discovery Plus, which is another streaming app that exists that nobody fucking subscribes to. Or more likely, they're going to move all of the Discovery Plus content over to HBO Max because it has the better brand name. So, well, that's what it would appear with this last story yeah. that I read. Yeah, which no matter how you slice it, fucking sucks. Well, I think it's very short sighted. I mean, besides the fact that artistically it's a bummer and it's just a huge letdown, I think it's also short sighted because I don't think that the same audience who is attracted to the brand that they built with HBO and HBO Max is the same audience who would be excited about these types of reality television and, you know, house flipping shows and this cheap kind of unscripted television. Now, I, you know... I have very little faith in humanity, so maybe I'm wrong. Or maybe they can train their audience to be excited about something new or find a new audience if if one leaves. But it seems to me like this is a decision that's going to make nobody happy. Yeah, to, to me it seems like if I was on the board or whatever, I don't know how these companies work, but I would be like, can we have a no confidence vote in fucking David Zaslav, who's just liquidating this fucking company? It's, I agree. To me, it seems incredibly short-sighted. It is, I just, it's like, are you dying? And you just, you know, like it's like a rat yeah. abandoning a ship. It is so wild. It's like when it, uh, and George Lucas sold all of Lucasfilm to... To Disney because he thought 2021 was really going to, or 2012 was really going to happen? Yeah, I don't know. It, it seems like that. It seems like he he is rapturing <laughs> uh, <laughs> this this app that, and again, I 
I can see if you're only looking at numbers and profit margins. I think HBO Max was probably one of the lower trending ones um, when it first started because competition was so fierce. Well, and but it now new. it's like a race to see who who can tank their streaming platform first, Netflix or HBO Max. It's it's no longer these streaming companies trying to outdo each other. It's just like, can we survive each other? It's incredible what's happening. Meanwhile, Amazon is, I guess, like totally reformatting their streaming app because everybody realizes that that one is terrible and they're, and they're trying to get into this game that it seems like Netflix and HBO Max are trying to get out of. It's just like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> well, in the case of Amazon, that makes sense because right now it's a mess because it's still tied into their store. And even if you're logged into Prime on your whatever device you're using to stream your Xbox or a Fire Stick or whatever it is, a smart TV, um, it's still mixed in with the, the rentals are still mixed in with the free content. And it's, yeah. And you, you'll be like, oh shit, that's playing or that I, I can rent that. And then you look at it, it's like, oh, I got to pay five bucks. Never mind. Yeah, um, it's, it, so it's they, really ugly. They do, just on a structural level, need to clean that up and make that a lot easier to use. But in the case of HBO Max, you know, as long as... If they sequester or annex all of their unscripted stuff to one portion of the app and they leave the rest of it unscathed and we still we still get all of the... Original HBO programming. Which I, I don't think that's going to go anywhere because that's, yeah. I, it's, it, their, it's, it's their it's their titles. I mean, you know, they own it. They don't have, even have to yeah. pay to stream any of that. It can exactly. only help them to have it. So, yeah, I mean, as long as you still have access to all of that and they don't sell off or completely do away with their movie catalog, then I could see... I still don't know who's going to HBO Max to watch House Flipper shows, but whatever, do with it, do with it what you want. Well, if, I, if it becomes, and I, I fear this might happen because this is what happened to Netflix. Mm -hmm. Once you let in the reality the, shows, yeah, the cancer that is reality television, the to cheap any, to any network, yeah, it could be the most rock solid. Network like prestige network. Remember what the History Channel was like in the nineties? Hey, yeah, yeah. yeah. I and mean, then it and then ancient aliens exactly. comes it's, along, and now it's it is a it's like a crack addicted prostitute on the corner. It's it. it you're right. So it, it's interesting because HBO. Um, if you if you look up MTV's scheduling now, they literally show twenty hour blocks. Of old episodes of Jersey Shore, and that's it. Yeah, because they I don't, don't even know why they pay exist. Anything for this I know, and pe and people watch it. It's it's just like it is low effort, low cost, uh, high profit. Like it, from right. again, if if it's just from a numbers point of view, it makes sense. It's disgusting, and it's like 
it's nothing. It's just, I don't know. I Here's what I don't get, though, is I don't, as, as a consumer, and I just, maybe I'm just, uh, maybe this is just a me thing, but if I'm watching television, right, like, which I don't have anymore, but, you know, if I'm, like, in a hotel room or if I'm home for the weekend or whatever and I just have access to satellite yeah. or whatever, you know, I'll flip through channels and, yeah, I'll land on something weird like, you know, uh, sword flippers or, or whatever. I wish that was a show. Uh, no, I was making that up, but I it know. would be a fun one. Like, you know, you buy a sword at a swap meet and you have to flip it into a I think that's just sword. called Pawn I don't Stars. Know. You just you just reinvented <laughs> Pawn Stars. Yeah, sure. Uh, but, you know, if, if I'm flipping through something, I'll land on something and it's like, you know, it gets me. I'm like, all right, sure. But I don't stream that stuff. I don't. Right. Like, it's the kind of thing where if I catch it midway through and there's something weird or interesting or crazy, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll watch it for three hours or whatever. But I'm not going to push play on this stuff. I'm not going to. I don't on Netflix. And mm-hmm. I again, I guess. I guess it is do. just me because I know a lot of people who do that. So. A lot of people do. Isn't Fuckboy Island a Netflix show? Uh, no, that's a HBO, I think. I think that is an HBO Max reality Well, we show. probably have that to blame for everything then. But Did you watch uh, Sexy Beasts? That one's fun. Oh, that was the the weird one where they where they had like professionally done movie makeup done to look yeah, like, and they're like dolphin people or whatever going on dates. <laughs> yeah. That one's yeah. actually pretty fun and uh Rob Delaney's like the narrator of it, so it's, yeah. it's pretty funny. So but. I, I think the mo- it's it's fair to but say yes, I, I mean, that the model uh, of for successful reality television on streaming platforms has long since like that genie's out of the bottle. Yeah, and everybody, you know, I'm not not guilty of it, but it's never my go-to. You know what I mean? I don't know. It's 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 frustrating to see this streaming app that I thought that looked from you know again from a con- very specific consumer's perspective, mm-hmm. it looked like HBO Max was winning. Like it, it oh, it was on like the trajectory it- too. Yeah, especially as Netflix's. Uh, creative stock was plummeting well and, and their and their literal money like losing subscribers left and right yeah they were set to to overtake it i think it would have just been a matter of a year or two but now who knows the other thing i wanted to mention about this story is if i'm apple tv right now i I mean, especially them. You could say maybe Hulu too, but they sort of had their own brand figured out. Yeah, Hulu's um, kind of just where they're going to be, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think they're doing pretty well doing what they're doing, and they might end up being winner by default. If uh, HBO Max really does become the shit show that it sounds like they're going to become, mm. I would go all in on being the populist prestige thing. I mean, that's kind of what they already are. Like, they just want a best picture yeah. with Coda. They mm-hmm. have very successful television shows with Ted Lasso and that one you're watching, I forgot, Adam Scott thing. Severance, which you should fucking watch it. They yes. they just 
They have a bunch of you shows know. that people are very excited about with big name actors. So they mm-hmm. they came out of the gate mm-hmm. swinging as it was. Yeah. And they haven't sullied their brand already with complete garbage. So well, if I were them, I would go to Bloomhouse. I would go to A24. I would go to as many of those kind of large independents and sign exclusive uh, stream streaming deals with them right now. I mean, absolutely. Uh, you're not wrong. Uh, because right now they kind of only have their original content and they, they have not been around long enough to, to you know, mm. like they need to fill out their portfolio a little bit better. Um, but if they can do that, absolutely. Um, but but you're not wrong. Like if they are started getting some content to fill out, I mean, they're set up to to do really well in the next five to ten years. I'm convinced that David Zaslav has a brain tumor or something uh, and is just trying to cash out quick. Right. Or, you know, we're going to all be clapping seals excited for season five reveals of sword uh, flippers. I was going to say like (laughs) fuck boy housewives of Calabasas or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. So that's that. I think we managed to catch everybody up on the internet for the last three days. Yeah, um, it's a, not a great day for streaming, but a good day for keeping your physical media. Let's go ahead and start talking about The Gray Man. Uh, the Gray Man uh, just came out on Netflix, and it stars Ryan Gosling and Chris Evans. It's directed by the Russo Brothers who most people are probably familiar with their work in the MCU, the Marvel movies. Uh, They've been doing a lot of the major Avengers movies and stuff since, I believe their debut in the Marvel Universe was Captain America Civil War. Uh, No, I I think it was Winter Soldier. That's what I meant. Yes, Captain America Winter Soldier. Uh, Yeah, which is widely regarded as as still one of the best uh, to date. So the Gray Man is about Ryan Gosling plays this super spy who was released from prison into this sort of super spy program, very Suicide Squad kind of thing, where his prison sentence gets reduced if he becomes James Bond. He goes by number six. Cut to many years later, he's on assignment to take out a bad guy. Uh, he gets in close to the bad guy uh you know there's fight action uh and the bad guy reveals himself to be one of these other special agents there is uh someone within the cia uh played by Regé jean page um who people might recognize from bridgerton seems to be eliminating all of the the people from this old program uh due to some kind of dirt that he has on a flash drive that he gives to Ryan Gosling. So immediately, once that is in his possession, Carmichael, the Regé Jean Page character, turns all of the CIA's assets into hunting Ryan Gosling down. Uh, And part of that includes hiring uh, an independent contractor played by Chris Evans, uh, by the name of Lloyd Hansen. 
So Lloyd, uh, using unconventional methods, sends, you know, uh, this huge bounty on Ryan Gosling's head and there's action and they're chasing each other for this flash drive. Uh, in the middle of all that, we have uh, Anna de Armas playing Danny Miranda, who is with the CIA while all this is kind of going down and thinks that, you know, there might be more to this story. So she kind of forms an unsteady alliance with Six. Uh, and then we also run into Billy Bob Thornton, who was like the original uh, recruiter. Who has a niece, an, an, a niece played by Julia Butters, who people might remember from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, she had that fantastic sequence with Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, yeah, I, I met her. Yeah, I remember that. You met her on vacation, In right? Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she has been kidnapped, and so there's kind of a rescue plot involved in the MacGuffin hunting over this flash drive. You know, I brought up the uh, Captain America thing, not just because, obviously, that's, you know, the Marvel stuff is what everyone knows the Russos from. Um, now, they had done a lot of television and stuff before that. I think they had done Community and well, a bunch of things before their involvement in Marvel. But um, Yeah, yeah. But in Captain America Winter Soldier, they kind of took a lot of the similar material. This, mm-hmm. you know, uh, espionage thriller, globetrotting, um, you know, cyber terrorism, what have you. And then mix that in with the comic book stuff and the MCU skin on top mm-hmm. of that. And was able to really ground that character. The character that in the previous iteration was this 1940s pulp character mm-hmm. that was stylistically very different, both as a movie and as a character. He was this kind of oh shucks. World War II patriot fighting super Nazis. And then in, we turn it into more of a Patriot Games later on mm-hmm. in Winter Soldier. Um, yeah, it's sort of this combination of, you know, superhero action pulp with super spy trappings, which in the MCU seems to work, you know, it lend itself to that pretty well. Uh, yeah, here's the thing I think about the Russo brothers based off of the non MCU movies I've seen. They're really good at playing with other people's toys. Mm-hmm. I'm not super into that when they're making the toys. <laughs> um, I did not see Cherry, which came out last year and also had Chris Evans. Uh, didn't they also do that? That one with um, Chris Hemsworth, the where he was like the army guy. Extraction? No. Yeah, wasn't that him? But that was them? no, that wasn't. But that you know was basically his the gray man. Uh, they did do you, me, and Dupree all the way back in two thousand six. I never saw that one. Why did I think? I don't think anybody that? of note did Extraction. Oh, Joe Russo. Uh, was is credited on the screenplay. Oh, okay. So there is a connection. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I um, think I think what we're both getting at is 
to the credit of the MCU, there's enough, there's so much mythology there, you know, from the comic books, from Marvel. Um, there's so many stories to tell. There's so many characters that are larger than life. Um, the world building's already done for you. Mm-hmm. That they were able to take what they know from basic genre filmmaking and apply that to the rich world building and storytelling of Marvel and come out with something as exciting as Captain America Winter Soldier. Now, also, that was a big stylistic shift in their career. That was their big break. They were really hungry for it. That was before Mm -hmm. Marvel was 98% green screen CGI fests, and you could actually Mm -hmm. do scenes with sets and people in real-time space, um, which we're seeing a whole lot less of these days. Um, Yeah. And which we see a whole lot less of even in this film. There's a few big action sequences in particular where I was just looking at it going, you know, these these long train sequences and stuff going, this is real. Then it cuts. This is a green screen. This is real. This is a green this screen. This movie. This is a green screen. This is for, a green for screen. For reference. This movie cost $40 million more than Dune. What? Yeah. This movie, the budget was $200 million. Dune's budget was $160 million. Somehow. And I I get it. I know that studios hide tax write-offs and line items for movie budgets all the time. Like it, it happens. It, right. Movie and, budgets. And there's a lot. And Ryan Gosling is probably not a cheap get. Nor are the Russos. But Timothy for that Chalamet isn't a cheap get. Uh, uh, Josh Brolin isn't a cheap get. You know, I mean, like it's not like Dune doesn't have stars. Yeah. But what the fuck did they spend that money on? It is wild to me. Yeah, that because is that is this movie I did not know that. This movie is middling at best. Mm-hmm. Uh it's I think pretty boring for the most part. It it even the action, which typically I feel like you can rely on the Russo brothers for, I felt like was pretty boring. And and I think you are are nailing part of the problem is it's this like this shift from set to green screen to real stunt so nothing really feels of a piece and we don't really know anything about this character he's just kind of you know he has ryan gosling's charm but this isn't oh there's nothing the mythology doesn't even run as deep as you know like mission impossible or james bond or the or or even the born identity which has like you know, which all have like these books to draw from, right? Wasn't Born Identity a book? Yeah. Anyway, book you know, it has this yeah. sort of world to draw from, and they're trying to or any of the do clancy the John Wick stuff approach. or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was. That was what I was feeling the most while watching this. Is like because there's supposedly sequels and and tie-ins and spinoffs already planned for this character that I don't. I don't know who for, because I, I haven't talked to anybody yet who's super excited about the Gray Man series and the Gray Man universe this, to come. Um, this, and here's the thing. If they're, if they're going to go that route, that's fine. This should be a Hollywood stunt show. That's cool. All right. 
well, just have it be that, right? What you I was going like, to say is, I it, felt while watching it, it's like, oh, they they want to do the next John Wick. That's what they think yeah, they but, have here. That's why that's, they got Ryan Gosling. That's why yeah. the movie is ninety eight percent set pieces and stunts, except for all the stunts are like kind of faked in the camera and and not really impressive. And there's the fight choreography is so completely chopped up in editing. Who knows what anyone's actually yeah. doing? Yeah. So, have you seen any of the John Wicks? Those I know movies, that those, they were made by the, the, well, I don't know if all of them were. Were they all directed by the same guy? I know that it started from uh, a stunt choreographer who worked with Keanu Reeves on the Matrix films. Yeah, but the, but those movies unabashedly know what they are. It yeah. is it is a showcase for incredible choreographed action sequences uh, that are brutal and intense and fun. And uh, around it, they've. They have created this goofy but very fun mythology. You know, there's this whole Assassin's League and stuff. And it's those movies are fun because they don't bite off more than they can chew. And at least the first one is grounded in this this pathos. They they play really heavy into the, you know, the dog. And that's enough. That's enough. Keanu Reeves buys into this mourning of this dog wholesale and it it is enough to sell the movie you know and and it's kind of quirky like oh you fucked with this guy's dog like you know he's the scariest motherfucker on the planet and Mm -hmm. it it just it works they're they're kind of silly and this is just i it doesn't cling to any one life raft you know like the closest we have to that is this relationship they they kind of try to build with six and uh and claire the the niece you know with this flashback sequence which is i think the best part of the movie because it's the only part that actually gives us anything about these characters (laughs) to give a shit about yeah that's i i uh you know while i was watching this i i was just kind of letting it wash over me and like okay yeah this is just every born movie every mission impossible every like the hunter becomes the hunted assassin movie that I've ever seen in my entire life. Like just Mm -hmm. incredibly ordinary. Um, and none of it was like, you know, they're throwing $200 million at me apparently, but I'm not feeling any of it. And then we finally get this flashback sequence with, with them just in a room talking and hanging out and she's playing records and, you know, she's great by the way. Yeah. Two movies in a row. She's a standout in the Ryan Gosling. Axe him off the movie. Yeah. Because yeah, she, she actually wants she to She has there. heart. She has character. She has stuff to do that isn't just stunt work. Yeah. And and I was like, oh, aren't scenes great? I love scenes. <laughs> this movie could have been so much better had it had instead of trying to make a John Wick franchise Grey Maniverse. Had they just used that dynamic, you know, oh, uh, I see what you're saying. let Ryan Gosling be the, the heavy, let him be the, the stunt guy and get, give her give her something to do besides just run away and get kidnapped or whatever. Like, play on that dynamic, because for the for fuck's sake, it's the only dynamic in the movie. They try and give a dynamic 
with a few different characters. They try to give a dynamic between him and Chris Evans, who Chris Evans, yeah, next to Julia Butters, Chris Evans is having the most fun in this movie. And I always prefer my Chris Evans to be snarky asshole Chris Evans. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it's, I it, like him as, as Steve Rogers as much as the next guy, but you know, he's always kind of been a cipher in most of the Marvel movies. Uh, mm-hmm. But when he really gets to chew it up and, and lean into it and just do a, a bunch of mustache acting, I'm, I'm totally there for it. He's fun. He's very arch. He's very, uh, uh, you know, melodrama. He's literally like a mustache twirling villain. Well, he knows what. Yeah, movie, I, I, he knows what movie this is. He's given the best dialogue. I wish the rest of the movie was having as much fun as he was. Right. Exactly. So they they so they have Ryan Gosling and him as, as, as sort of this you know villain hero dynamic. They have the relationship with with uh with the niece they have the relationship with billy bob thornton which i felt could have been something but they have so little screen time together that it doesn't really happen um yeah and they really try with ana de armas and she's unfortunately just barely registering on this movie it's not her fault no it's it's that they it she's not great in this movie but she is a great actress in fact they have shared the screen together uh, once before in Blade Runner, but yeah, yeah, and, uh, to much more effect, in much more interesting ways. Absolutely, I, I, yeah, they just kind of it feels like she's thrown into the mix because they they have to have a girl. Like that's literally what it feels like. The same goes with um, Jessica Henwick. Uh, she's a good actress as well. She's like the evil guys liaison or whatever she's the one that's like yeah everybody what? i mean a lot there's a lot of these snivelly villainy type guys who yeah, are yeah. kind of hanging I, around like in the cia and them and uh and on the villain side and well what i'm saying is for her character as well it just feels like oh we need a girl on the bad guy team too like it is it just feels so i mean if that was if that was intentional if that was what they were going for then why not have a scene where her and Anna de Armas go toe-to-toe? Because the movie is so not interested in that. It, it is literally like... That's why I don't think it was intentional. I, 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 don't even, I don't think they were trying to fill a quota. I think they just have these archetypes in their mind of people they've seen in a Bourne movie or people they've seen in a Jack Reacher or whatever and then... Yeah, they, may, maybe that's all it is, but... And they, and they it, just kind of put you know, tab A and the slot B for the, for the movie. And they hope that just doing the genre as we've seen it a hundred thousand times before, that's the issue here. It's like, if you're going to do this movie in mm-hmm. the year 2022, you've okay. got to do to- something more than, than just have Ryan Gosling, uh, globe trotting, looking for a jump drive. Yeah. Like we've so, seen so- that movie so many times. And if, and th- the other problem is, you could maybe even excuse the lazy writing had the action sequences been really inventive and interesting to look at, but they're just not. Half of well, them are, like I said, t- the, the fight scenes are totally lost in the edit and the kinetic camera movement. Yeah. It's always through like 
smoke-filled rooms and bad lighting. I don't I can't see what the fuck is going on for most of it. And so Yeah, which for 200 million dollars like I should see every drop of sweat. Yeah, I mean there's a couple action sequences I, like I liked his escape sequence um uh you know, at one point. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, that's the, okay. Here's the, the thing. The action isn't I'm not going to say it's terrible, but it's just so pedestrian it is so boilerplate it is so not doing anything extra and not to go back to john wick too much but there's a reason we're still talking about john wick it's not because the script was amazing it's because they delivered on the fucking action like that's why that movie works is it's Mm -hmm. it's a a framework for these in this these incredible choreographed fight scenes where you can see what the fuck is going on. You know, unfortunately, this movie learned the wrong fucking lesson. Yeah. Yeah. You're, uh, that was pretty much my take. I mean, even Atomic Blonde kind of did all this and with more style. And that movie's not like the greatest, but this movie. Yeah, it had some, uh, exactly. It has, it has stuff to cling on to. Like, yeah. it, it has, it has a cool sort of, Sort of like feel. It has a vibe, at least. Yeah, vibes all day. This movie has like a collection of good performances and a lot of nothing supporting it. The here's the thing: the terrible title sums it all up. The Gray Man. Blah. This that's what this movie is. I think it is also based on the novel, and there might have been more there to draw from that they chose not to. I don't know. I mean, people do like this airport fiction crap, but. Um, and you can do airport fiction crap well. I, in some ways, yeah. I I am not above airport fiction crap. I watched all of Dexter, uh, <laughs> but right there's nothing. There, this isn't even. But you got to bring this something just, to it. You got to elevate it somehow. If you're just doing, if you're just doing the the recipe by instruction with no panache no flair no style no substance it doesn't matter how many ryan goslings you shove in this it doesn't there's nothing is going to register and he looks bored to be in this movie i can't imagine them wanting to make more of them because he's completely unchallenged here and you know on a separate note he kind of needs this right now he's been out of the game for too long he you know he was Mm -hmm. white hot when we started this podcast to the point that he was our catchphrase. Yeah. And now I feel like he has to almost introduce himself to a whole new audience. And this and Barbie well, I think, was supposed I think it's to do it. Interesting. And he's zero for two right now. Yeah. I, I, I think it's interesting because uh, he, from what I understand, he's always been pretty vocal about like not wanting to do, you know, some, six picture deal with Yeah, he's Marvel usually picky. Because he he kind of yeah. you get the idea that he waits for the good pitches. That's why I wasn't complaining that he was taking a break. It's like, okay, you know, he's going to come back in a big way and people will be excited. And then he goes and does this and I'm like, "Huh? Yeah, what are you, what are you doing?" And now and it's puts getting nothing sequelized into it. and like it would it would be a different story if like he if he you know, Captain Jack Sparrowed this movie or something and turned that role into something nobody could have predicted, but he didn't. He just yeah, ran in and pointed a gun and, you know, 
hit his marks. There's a couple quips, but that anyone can deliver. It, it's just, yeah, I I give this movie a D plus, and I think that's being pretty generous. I'm giving it a C minus. I think it's kind of cable movie tripe, but it's like I said, I don't, I don't. It's not even bad enough to be upset about. It's just so painfully ordinary. Yeah, exactly. It, I I will remember almost nothing about this movie. Yeah, uh, and that's fine. I don't know. I just. It's also you know. Uh, two hours like it, you know, it's, oh, it's a little too long it to feels be as bland forever as it is. long i was yeah and there that you know there's a climax that happens and there's still like 20 minutes left on i literally i literally looked at the clock on my wall i'm like how is there still 20 minutes of this movie left yeah oh for sure uh we i was watching it with my wife ashley and she she you know it was getting late and she did the thing where she checked how much time was left and she's like ah fuck it i'm going to bed right <laughs> and the next day she's like so how'd the movie end and i'm like is it exactly how you think it did like right there were no surprises uh and compare this compare the pacing of this movie with rrr which is three hours yeah like that movie breezes by and this movie which is two hours and ten minutes by like the forty-five minute mark, I'm like, okay, where, I pause it. How much is this left? Oh, there's still an hour and twenty. Jesus. Yeah, exactly. That's I don't know. I just it's not even like you said. It's not even worth hating. It's just yeah. again the name says it all. It's two hundred million dollars. This would be at the five dollar bin at Walmart in two thousand three. Yeah. Exactly. To go back to to the fucking streaming conversation we had about Netflix, they will spend $200 million on this, but they'll scrap most shows after their second season before they can even find an audience. It's like, yeah, what are you doing? It, 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 it's not even the streaming wars. It's just the content wars now. It's it, it, nobody cares. It's not about making a movie. It's about just, uh, we need two hours of Ryan Gosling content. Like, just come on. Yeah, it's about keeping eyeballs uh, as stuck on your particular platform as long as possible. That's why now they, you know, it's like TikTok where you don't even get a choice to watch the next video. It just starts playing. That's how, like, all yeah. the television shows are now. It's like, do you want to skip the intro? This, this is a skip the movie. Yeah. Uh, we've said enough about it. I, I think we have. Let's start talking about the streaming homework, which is from Hulu. Um, we've we touched on all of them today, I think. <laughs> I think so. I think we've talked about every platform. <laughs> uh, not Paramount Plus. Not Paramount Plus, which is trash. They have Star Trek, and that's all they have. Oh, yeah, well, people do like that. But that's it. That's all they have. Anyway, whatever. From Hulu. The documentary that uh, came out last year is called A Glitch in the Matrix, directed by documentarian Rodney Asher. Uh, most people are probably familiar with him, if you're familiar at all, with his cult documentary Room 237, which came out, I want to say, 2013 or so. Uh, all about very strange people who have very strange theories about 
The Shining and have written bizarre hypotheses, their interpretations of the film, most of which is not substantiated by the content of the film. He moved on then to a documentary that got a lot of buzz out of Sundance called The Nightmare, which I've mentioned before. I It's one of the few movies I refuse to see because it focuses on people with sleep paralysis and dramatizes what people see in their hallucinations. Have you ever and experienced sleep paralysis? I've had sleep issues. I've never, I've never full on hallucinated, knock on wood. Okay. But I have, I've definitely had like that feeling where I can't move. And I've, I've also had the feeling like where I want to wake up, but can't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you get kind of panicked and then you eventually come out of it. That's as close enough to that as I want to get. Yeah, the very concept of it just scares the hell out of me, and I don't want to even fuck with it. No, no, yeah, I, I, I get it. I, Look, yeah, I, it will psychically terrorize me to watch that movie, so I won't. I, uh, um, I, I have experienced the the phenomena at varying different levels, uh, up to and including having hallucinations, and it is not pleasant. So I've heard, and here he, this is his third uh, full length documentary. A Glitch in the Matrix, which goes all into people who have different theories uh, about simulation theory. This idea that how do we know that we're not all living in some sort of digital simulation? Either like the Matrix proposes that there is a real us somewhere on the other side of this sort of plugged into these this simulation world that's been built for us or that we are in fact just programs in the larger program of this universe. And uh, we're none the wiser, essentially. We see kind of a lot of different perspectives in this Rodney Asher sort of way. We see a lot of different perspectives from these documentary subjects who explain why they feel they believe this the way they do. Some come from religious backgrounds, which is interesting. Some do not. Others have kind of a more of a playful approach to it. Others have taken into very dark directions. And it also talks a lot about the sort of the popularization of this theory through through the speeding up of technology that we've seen just within our lifetimes. You know, they, they talk about the advancements of video games in the last 50 years or, you know, computers in general, but also video games um, and uh, photorealistic CGI and how being able to observe this in our everyday lives has given people, I guess, more of the language to wrap their heads around this or to even discuss it in any kind of way. Of course, forums like Reddit have been a breeding ground Uh, For this, there is a subreddit called A Glitch in the Matrix that I think existed before the film, um, as well as things like the phenomenon known as the Mandela Effect, uh, which, depending on who you talk to, if you're an adherent to the Mandela Effect, you either believe that it's like parallel universes that we're hopping back and forth from, or you might believe in simulation theory. Yeah, I mean, uh, I could go on and on about why the uh, why the uh, theory is taken off the way that it has. Uh, the documentary goes into that quite a bit, but uh, 
what did you think about while watching it? So I feel like I need to for this review. This this review is a little challenging for me um, because I, I feel like, especially sometimes with documentaries, um, it's very easy for us to talk more about the subject matter than the movie itself. Um, sure. And in this particular instance, uh, I do not care for simulation theory. I think it is just the stupidest crock of shit. Um, <laughs> that is, it, it just, to me, it's high thoughts. It is just, whoa, what if we were all living in a simulation? It, but, yeah. um, I'm 14 and I'm very deep. Exactly. So yeah. I do not care for simulation theory, but this movie is an interesting approach to it, to the subject matter and, and takes it very seriously yeah. to the to the point where at the beginning of the film I was a little confused because I I almost felt like it was trying to convince us that simulation theory is real, um, but as the movie goes on. You learn that that's not really like that. The movie's not trying to convince us, and once I kind of got that from the movie, I I was able to kind of have a lot more fun with it. Because um, mm-hmm. at first, it feels like it's presenting this stuff as sort of as fact, um, but then like once it gets more into sort of the pathology of the you know kind of why people believe it and how it started to take off. And it, it, the movie kind of shifts perspective and becomes a little more um, objective. Uh, mm-hmm. And once we sort of get there with the documentary, I enjoyed it a lot more because I, I felt less like I was being sold this bullshit theory. And I was like, oh, OK, this is just sort of documenting why people think this and and how so many people think it and, and stuff like that. I don't care for the theory, but I do think the movie is a an interesting presentation of the theory. Yeah, and and I, one of the things I like about Rodney Asher's approach to documentary making is he has you know he does most everything through interview and through talking heads, mm-hmm. um, through his documentary subjects, uh, but he tries not to rely on and we talk about this a lot when we review documentaries he tries not to rely on the interview stock footage or using interview as the spine of the narrative mm-hmm. and then just filling it out from there i mean he, he in a way this is the most of of the work i've seen him do this is the closest to that that he's ever done but he does it in his own subversive way where he Gives everyone these over-the-top uh, computer-generated avatars. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, there's I a think... man that looks like a like a computerized lion, and there's a guy <laughs> who looks like Anubis wearing a suit. Yeah, and there's a lot of like you know like CGI recreations, and and mm-hmm. there's a very visual aspect to this movie that yeah, yeah. if you're looking at just sort of the content. You know, it, it is just kind of people talking about th- this sort of crazy idea, but it's presented in a very visual way. And I, I think that's important. 
Um, it, it is yeah, the very... editing comes becomes very much part of the language of the of the storytelling here, and 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 I like you know he always uses a lot of B roll from other movies or you know um, uh, commercials and things like that, and he'll he'll find these clever ways to 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 fit them in. Now, obviously, sometimes like if they're referring directly to the Matrix, then they'll show some clips from the Matrix. Yeah, yeah. But they'll then you know he. He found a way to slip in 13th floor. There's a movie I haven't thought about in forever. Um, and all of these and like, a lot of, uh, things from the 90s. And, and almost as much uh, Johnny Mnemonic as The Matrix, which I think is kind of fun. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, all that cyberpunk stuff. And um, one of the well, one of the major narrative tools he uses yeah. is this conference that Philip K. Dick had in the late 70s, I want to say 77 or so, mm-hmm. uh, right when he was coming into prominence as a writer, um, where he first sort of presented, I don't know if he was the very first person to present this, but he presented the idea of simulation theory and seemed to be dead-ass serious about it. Yeah, you know, it's I think of hard to say probably was. With I Philip mean- K. Dick, because you never know, especially at a sci-fi conference, you never know... Yeah, you know it's like it's like, like look at look at how long people have been arguing about the ending of Blade Runner, right? Well, yeah, exactly, and and also even though some of that is some of that is uh, Ridley Scott, not from Philip K. Dick's original short story, but what I mean to say is, you know, was he was he just hyper selling this idea to sell books or to to get people more you know, as sort of a marketing gimmick to get people into his his style of world building? Well, or was he genuinely very paranoid and obsessed with this this idea and uh, see, I, you know, did this these supposed experiences he had inform his writing? And and that comes to also kind of my frustrations with this movie is they sort of use this Philip K. Dick conference as as sort of a jumping off point and as kind of a spine, you know, that the movie keeps coming back to. And I think mm. it could have benefited from a little bit more sort of backstory on Philip K. Dick, you know, well, because I, at that point you have a different documentary. Uh, yes and no. I, 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 I think background into him as an author would be very helpful if they're selling him as the progenerator of this as a modern idea, which they are and they aren't to some extent because, you know, there is Mm. there. They do make the case for older versions of the simulation theory and, and sort of the way simulation theory has evolved with technology. But they attribute a lot of these ideas to Philip K. Dick. So I, I, I feel like some more there would have been helpful because I, you know, I'm also wondering these things. I, I you know, I've heard stories about him being, you know, wasn't he fairly paranoid? Would, didn't, didn't he have drug problems? I, mean, I, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know a whole lot about him. So I, I don't know. I think a little bit more there would have been just useful information. Right. Well, one of the stories we didn't get to in a new segment was um, 
Charlie Saron and Alfonso Curan are partnering for Jane, a feature based on the personal life of sci-fi author Philip K. Dick. Oh, interesting. A genre bender is the genre bender is based on the relationship between Dick and his twin sister who died six weeks after birth. So maybe we'll learn more there. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I just, I saved that one kind of for this conversation cause I sort of knew it would come up. Yeah. I, um, I just feel like a little more background into him would have been good to sort of frame the conversation. And also Again, maybe would have gotten me to the point of this isn't trying to sell me simulation theory a little sooner. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I like Rodney Asher as a director is a lot of the reasons why people don't like him. And he's a very divisive documentary filmmaker because in a way I feel like all of his movies are kind of tricky. And by tricky, I don't mean like you have to figure them out. I mean, like, he's literally trying to trick you. The movies are never about what they are supposed to be about. <laughs> so if you watch Room 237, it's not about The Shining. It never was about The Shining. That's the pretext. But what the movie is really about is, and what he's obs obsessed with as a, storyteller and what he keeps coming back to in one way or another in all of his work that I've seen both in short and long form documentary. It's this idea of the subjective experience and this mm -hmm. idea that, you know, everybody experiences the world from a, from their own perspective and that their perspective limits the scope of how they can interact with the world. And because of that, people's interpretations of what they see, people's interpretations of, of what they feel is real or not real or true or not true or what is legitimately terrifying or what is, you know, a message being, you know, beamed into their head from above or whatever they might feel is because of this idea of the subjective experience and how it's influenced by, you know, uh, objective reality. If Rodney Asher even believes in objective re reality, I'm not sure he actually does. Um, the other thing that his movies are obsessed with is obsession. Mm -hmm. You know, these people are trying to find answers in all of his movies. Um, they're, they're desperate to cling on to whatever cockamamie thing to fill out these greater narratives, the why of everything. Mm hmm you know, so when people are looking at, in room 237, you know, there's some people who believe that the, the there's one specific documentary subject who believes that the movie is Stanley Kubrick trying to tell everybody that he faked the moon landing for NASA. Mm -hmm. And there's another, there's a few people who believe that it's about the genocide of the Native Americans. There's another person who believes that it's all about the Holocaust. There's a lady who believes that it's all about, you know, these sort of, uh, Greek mythology and, and the Minotaur and all of this stuff. And it might be about all those things. It might be about none of those things. It doesn't matter. The, the point is that all of these people are, you know, taking this idea of, of all of these people are trying to sort of read into it what they can mm -hmm. to come up with some sort of text that they, that they want to present you know, subtextual 
criticism. There's the word that I'm looking for. And that, you know, that's what it covers in, in room 237. And, and then I can only, I have not seen the nightmare, but obviously the realm of dreams is nothing but subjective experience and the mind and obsession. This, it's almost sort of like the, the logical conclusion of that idea. You know, the reductio ad absurdum of, mm-hmm. of taking a subtextual reading of, of a text, like a film or a book or, and applying that to reality itself to be able to come up with these larger answers. And, you know, obviously that's how like we arrived at religion and spirituality and, and, you know, different, even science itself, you know, uh, comes from these, these larger questions. Yeah. Again, that, I, that kind of brings me to back to this movie and it's, uh, I don't know. It, it's, it, you know, the whole simulated reality thing is an interesting thought experiment. Mm-hmm. But subject matter wise, I don't know that there's necessarily enough there to fill out a whole movie. I don't know that I like, especially in the front half of the movie, I was like, and maybe it's cause I, you know, I kind of know the bullet points of this already. Um, but, you know, I, I think most of us who watched The Matrix in our young adulthood probably, you know, like, already kind of get it. Right. Or at least get the idea behind it. And so I, I guess that's what sort of frustrated me about this movie at first was, like I said, it, it sort of felt like it was trying to prove something. And I was like, okay, what, you know, what are we, what are we doing here? Like, are we really going to to dedicate this whole movie to just like an unprovable high idea. And then it kind of settles into itself. Uh, um, so I don't know. It, for me, it was a little frustrating uh, of a watch, uh, but, it, but at the same time, it's done well. It's, you know what I mean? Like, like you said, the, the avatars and the, the uh, computer, reenactments you know all of these things are make it very watchable it makes it a movie it just as far as the content goes some of it felt a little filler to me uh some of it felt a little like kind of get to the point of the movie i don't know yeah i mean i, I think if it de- i think it depends on what point you're trying to derive out of it coming at it having seen some of his stuff beforehand, I already knew what I should be looking for. And actually what, what surprised me is that he does arrive at these larger answers and answers. is not something he's generally ever been um, interested in, but maybe he's getting a little softer in his old age. I don't know, but I feel like, you know, one of the largest themes of this movie that are, arrives out of these different interview subjects, none of which are experts, by the way. I mean, there's like one academic who is not computer animated, um, who yeah, obviously yeah. doesn't believe any of this. She, she's just sort of there for, for context reasons. Um, but, you know, the, the, the main subjects of the movie, you talk about their experiences with, with simulation theory or believing in it and how it affects their day to day. 
you know, one of the things that I think we arrived to is this notion of loneliness, of mm-hmm. technology sort of creating, you know, basically this is like what Radiohead's been singing about since OK Computer. <laughs> um, sure, yeah. But this idea that, you know, the the inhumanity and the coldness of technology that we've 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 created, you know, all these little digital worlds for us to live in along the way we've become more and more interior and more and more internal and our thought process becomes more and more abstracted and we become basically avatars of ourselves in a Mm -hmm. living world at this point. So when you're walking down the street and you're having these interactions with people, you're, you know, going to coffee bean to, to buy a iced latte or whatever. And then you get back in your car and you listen to your podcast and you go home or whatever it is. It feels just as real or just as meaningful or just as unmeaningful as any kind of video game experience does now, because there's, there's for a lot of people, and I shouldn't say everybody, there are a lot of people who still live, you know, healthy amounts of their lives on and offline, but that the conditions that's been created in a post-digital age have have been part of this proliferation of the interest in simulation theory because we might as well be living in it, even if it isn't real. You know, it's like any thought experiment. Well, I, I, it's, I mean, it's as, re- it's, it's as real as we can. You, we can talk about probabilities. I guess that's about as close to science you can really get with it. No, but I, no. So, okay. I, that's this is where so I, not what the movie's about. But what I, what I came away with was this larger story of, of loneliness. Well, yeah, and and this is why I wanted to, to very specifically separate these ideas from from the movie. You know, the phenomenon that he's talking about versus the move, the approach of the filmmaking to portray, to portray, to portray it. Because I, I think, I mean, my, my problem with simulation theory is, uh, uh, that it's, you know, taken to the extreme and the, the movie kind of goes there is it becomes a very dangerous. Uh, idea because if nothing's real then then nothing then there are no right. consequences um you know people can hijack a plane and joyride a plane and and it's fine because we can you know, we're just gonna reboot or whatever and and that's when the movie started to kind of turn for me was in you know it's not trying to sell me simulation theory it's it's just but you know I don't know when you get fucking Elon Musk talking about it like Elon Musk is a fucking thought leader and and not an asshole idiot billionaire just like the rest of them. Yeah, no, I know. That is uh, I don't I, I wouldn't necessarily call it criticism because for better or worse he did revive the interest in this theory. I remember that Ted talk. Sure. I remember Sure, and the he, headline and people th- at the time, well, and the the kind of people who you know who who are big fans of him, who follow him, yes, there there seems to be a, a predisposition in. Uh, there's definitely a connection there between Elon Musk and uh, simulation theory. Yeah, that's sort of the uh, stereotype of the Reddit atheist libertarian types who glom onto people like 
people like Jordan Peterson or like Elon Musk and and, and these type of pseudo-intellectuals. It should also be noted that Elon Musk has unraveled a lot more in like the last five years. Like there was a point in time, if you didn't know his whole background and stuff, you could believe he was like this, you know, oh, Steve, I, like Steve Jobs. Absolutely. I mean, I used, to, I used to absolutely think that about him. My opinion of him has radically changed over yeah. the, yeah, about the last And then he got years. addicted to Twitter and, and showed everyone who he really is. Um, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, but also that's why I almost thought this movie was a little bit older because I, I don't know. Uh, it's not about Elon Musk. He's barely in it. No, um, they, they use those sound bites because I, I mean, I do think that is, he is part of the larger story of how this theory got as big as it did, just as, you know, the idea of the Mandela effect uh, yeah. exploded when, when people well, it's, start it's sharing the way, their phenomenons and stuff. It, you know, it's, yeah, it's the way stuff goes viral. It's a very similar story to, you know, what happened with Pepe the Frog, which we uh, talked about in, in that documentary. Yeah. But I, I think what, frustrated me about this movie and and i'm not saying i didn't like it i i think it's it's certainly an interesting and unique documentary and uh in general i i liked the approach to it um because he does approach it from a very visual sense as far as the you know just the filmmaking itself goes but i think what sort of frustrates me about it as a, a narrative is there isn't really a narrative you know it, it, it we can kind of extrapolate these themes about loneliness and and the sort of disposition that is more likely to believe in in this and the societal parameters that created this but the movies doesn't the movie itself doesn't really talk about a lot of that explicitly it it, it definitely leaves those things kind of to interpretation there there isn't there isn't a lot of narrative here and and that kind of frustrated me a little bit um this movie's kind of a mixed bag for me i think it's interesting mm. i think it's worth watching but with an asterisk oh i'll be the first to admit that i think a lot of people who watch it won't like it yeah, because I feel like if you're if you're of the disposition to strongly believe in it, you're going mm -hmm. to want more. You're gonna want. Yeah. You're just gonna want to see the. You know. You're gonna want to see the all YouTube these theories. conspiracy theory version of it. Yeah. Um, you're you're gonna want that super deep dive. You, you you want that validation. You want that proof. Yeah, you're. That's what you're gonna be looking for answers, and he's not gonna provide you with any. And then if you're the type of documentary viewer who wants more of a, a greater overarching narrative, you're not going to get that either because I don't – I think he he purposely – and kind of why I call him a trickster, he, I don't think he wants the audience to know how he personally feels about it. Now, I think he – And that's – I think he reveals that. I think more so yeah, than any I, of his other so movies – um, and I think maybe it had to do with the fact that he was making this during the time of COVID and and mm -hmm. and a lot of things that I think maybe made him and actually be more sincere. 
because I, well, but, especially the but, one, the one story about the the kid who becomes obsessed with the Matrix, and I don't want to tell the whole thing because it's a big part yeah, of the movie. I, well, um, and so but that if you is, didn't know what the movie was about by that point, then I don't know what to tell you. But, Not you specifically, exactly, but, but that is all the stuff that I found the most interesting. That is the stuff that that I was like, oh, okay, like this is what I wanted from this movie was. Give me that human connection to the story. Give me the give me the story about simulation theory. And I feel like this movie is a little messy. It's a little it's a little bit the story of simulation theory. It's it is a little bit of there is a little bit of selling of it. Uh, uh, of here's yeah. this idea, you know, take it or leave it. There is this. Mm-hmm. It's a well, thought experiment, with, or as a philosophical outlook, it's fun to kind of play around with. Sure, it's but a, that's it's about an interesting all you can do thought experiment, but that's all it is. That, yeah. And here's the thing: it's to me, it's the same as conspiracy theory. Uh, uh, it's the same as pretty much any kind of religion. I, I might be pissing people off with this, but um, I'm, but. They're all belief systems, right? We can never prove that we're in a simulation one way or the other, right? Ever, like it's it's not provable. If if this if it is a simulation, it's so good that we can never find out. If it's not a simulation, well, you can't prove that it's not ever. Right. Uh, you know, it, it's the same as religion. We can't prove or disprove God. It's the same as conspiracy thought. They're not provable systems. It's all it's all belief. It's all how much stock do I want to put in this? How much do I want to personally invest in it? You know, how much do I believe it? And to me, that's the story here. And that's yes. the, the story the movie eventually gets at. Yeah, that tied all the way back to Plato's allegory of the cave. and Yeah, yeah. but it's... It, it's a little bit of a of a bumpy journey uh, to get there, but I, I like an the structure of the movie. I, 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 you know, I don't feel that it uh, it hinders. Um, I know what he's doing. I know that he's. I I know I'm that he's trying was... to. Uh, I know that he's trying to sort of bring in the audience who's interested in. Yeah, yeah. this movie's about this. We're going to figure it out, and then you know, slowly he sort of reveals the character study within the movie. I, I'm glad I was patient with it. I'm glad mm. I, I gave it that chance because I did come around to it. Narratively speaking, this movie's a little light, um, but it is, it is an interesting watch. It is, it is worth watching. And I, you know, I am interested in his other work. I, I've been interested in room two, three, seven. I've been waiting for it to pop up on a streamer, uh, to watch it. I might just have to eventually rent it. I have also been curious about the nightmare, but I don't know. I'll probably watch that eventually. Um, but you know, it's gotta be during the day for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can't go into it wanting answers cause you're not going to get them. Um, or at yeah. least answers about the subject at hand. Uh, what do you have for the streaming homework next week? Uh, yeah, for the next episode, I want to take us back to the 80s, uh, get a little more animation uh, into our 
lives, I guess. We are going to watch one of Miyazaki's first movies, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, uh, which is streaming on HBO Max. Yes. Got to get it but while they still have their content. Okay. So if anybody has anything they want to respond to on this episode or previous, you can hit us up on our email at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at mcguffinpod. And you can also follow us on Facebook if you're still on that. Uh, Facebook.com slash mcguffinpod, where we post new episodes when they go up. Uh, be sure to leave us a star rating and a one sentence review on iTunes or Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts. All of them. All, the, All of them. Yeah. Anywhere you can get your podcasts. Anywhere that allows you to leave a star rating and a, and a review, please do so. It helps people find the show. You can read the reviews that I do for the Idaho State Journal by looking up Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment page. Follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at VC Cassidy. Uh, and be sure to read the other articles and reviews by the McGuffin staff at McGuff.in. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. Uh, you can also check out my other account at Sticky Note Aesthetic. Uh, I'll probably stop plugging that soon because I have not updated it in forever, but whatever. Also, if you want to come see me do improv, uh, come check out Improv vs. Stand-Up at Mockingbird Improv in San Diego. Um, we've got I've got some shows coming up over the next few weeks in August. So uh, it's Saturday nights at uh, 9 o'clock, I think. Um, anyway, go to MockingbirdImprov.com and get some tickets. That is the episode.